Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Welcome back, everybody. Last week, I left you in kind of a lurch in the middle of the construction of the Chicago's World's Fair. As I mentioned last week, this topic came from a listener. Thanks again, Stacey. If you want to make a request, let me know. You can find me on the social medias, Instagram at Civics and Coffee, the Facebook, Civics and Coffee. And of course, if social media is not your thing, write me an email at civicscoffeepod at gmail.com. This week, I'm going to wrap up the oddities and displays of Chicago and go into details of the other U.S.-based World's Fairs, including a weird story about the Olympics. So, grab your coffee, peeps. Let's do it. Just to catch you all up, last week I ended Chicago's World's Fair getting the nickname The White City due to the materials used in construction. Another reason for the name? The very conscious decision to exclude African Americans from participating in the fair. Black leaders of the time argued strongly against their exclusion in a pamphlet titled, quote, The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition, the Afro-American's Contribution to Columbian Literature, end quote. Ida B. Wells and Frederick Douglass were among its contributors, and the pamphlet sought to demonstrate the achievements black Americans had made since their emancipation, and outlined the atrocities they still faced, such as economic disparities and lynchings. 10,000 pamphlets were disseminated to fairgoers. However, black representation remained largely absent from the fair. Only two exhibits included people of color, a small demonstration of weaving in the women's hall, and an African human exhibition showing a tribe on the midway. Both examples emphasized this concept of blacks as savages and ignored the myriad contributions made by African Americans. In a twist of irony, the Obama Presidential Library will now stand where the white city sat. So, while black Americans may have been absent and massively underrepresented in 1893, there will now stand an entire library dedicated to the achievements of the first black president of the United States. Forty-six countries participated, with a number of them erecting small villages along the mile-long midway. Touted as an ethnological study of various races of people, the country displays acted more like a carnival-style attraction, displaying non-white participants as savages. The fair opened on May 1, 1893, and closed on October 30th of the same year. The main attraction of the fair was electricity. It was everywhere, from Edison presenting the precursor to the movie with his kinetoscope, to the moving walkways guests could use to explore the grounds. Even the light of the fair was on display. The expo included almost 100,000 light bulbs. Electricity was not yet a widespread commodity available to the general public, and so many were in a state of awe at the sight of so many bulbs illuminating the fair. One of the darker parts of the exposition is the story of H.H. H. Holmes, a serial killer who used the backdrop of the fair to lure and murder nearly 30 people. Holmes was a con man who arrived in Chicago in 1886. In 1897, he purchased a lot to erect a mixed-use building, but the bottom floor acting as a drugstore. Hearing of the city's participation in the upcoming expo, Holmes added a third floor to his property, supposedly to be used as hotel space for the new visitors. At least... That's the line he fed his investors in order to get financing. The hotel, never fully finished, was discovered to have soundproofed rooms and chutes that would lead down to the basement. It is believed Holmes would send his victims down these chutes and use acid and quicklime to cremate the bodies. Creepy. 
Holmes was later arrested in 1894 and put on trial for just one murder, though some think he may have killed upwards of 200 people. When not being dark and creepy or overtly racist, the Chicago's World Fair had some pretty amazing exhibits on display, including replicas of Columbus's ships, the Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria. Sticking with the entertainment theme many U.S. fairs would cherish, George Ferris erected his giant wheel for visitors to ride. It would become known as the Ferris Wheel and is now a staple throughout carnivals and amusement parks. As the fair was preparing for its closing ceremonies, Chicago's mayor, Carter Harrison, was assassinated and the official ceremonies were canceled in lieu of a public memorial. Talk about a downer of a closing. Ten years later, it was St. Louis's turn to host a World Expo. Held between April 30th and December 1st, 1904, the fair was planned in celebration of the anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. The official title of the fair paid homage to the anniversary, known as the Louisiana Purchase Expo. In an effort to be bigger and better than prior World's Fairs, the expo took place on 1,200 acres in Forest Park on the Washington University campus, making it almost double the size of Chicago's World Fair just 10 years earlier. To celebrate the expo, the United States Postal Service issued five commemorative stamps. The stamps included individuals responsible for the land acquisition, the land mass itself, and a dedication to William McKinley, who signed legislation authorizing the fair prior to his assassination in 1901. This marked the first time a woman worked on the main board of commissioners, the entity responsible for the planning and maintenance of the event. Florence Hayward was a writer in St. Louis who negotiated her way onto the commission by advising the team of a less-than-trustworthy contractor. Hayward was a success in her given role, promoting the fair overseas. Sixty countries would participate in St. Louis's fair, though Hayward would receive no public recognition for her efforts. St. Louis isn't known for its historic contributions. There wasn't any show-stopping invention on display, although there were some pretty cool gadgets available, like the electric oven and the ice cream cone. However, St. Louis is special due to the tourist component. St. Louis attracted tourists from a wider mileage than its predecessors and had a major international presence. The operation of the fair coincided with the first time the United States was due to host the Olympics and was originally set to be held in Chicago. St. Louis, not wanting any competition for their fair, and still feeling slighted for losing to Chicago in 1893, argued heavily against Chicago as the host city and threatened to host a rival competition if Chicago didn't bow out and let St. Louis take over. The city got its way. However, many of the Olympic athletes did not attend. This is attributed both to the ongoing Russo-Japanese conflict and the difficulty of getting to St. Louis at the time. However, the three-medal system of gold, silver, and bronze originated with the 1904 Olympics, so perhaps it wasn't a total waste. Another notable event taking place at the Expo? The Democratic National Party hosted their nominating convention at the fair and nominated Elton B. Parker for their presidential ticket. The Democrats would lose to Republican Teddy Roosevelt. Moving along to 1915, San Francisco hosted the Panama Pacific International Exposition. Open from February 20th through December 4th of 1915, the expo was touted as a celebration of the completion of the Panama Canal. However, it was also used as a much-needed economic boost after the 1906 earthquake decimated much of the city. Held in what is now known as the Marina District, the fair spanned across 636 acres between the Presidio and Fort Mason. Taking place so close to the water, organizers had a major feat on their hands and had to fill in marshland and get permission from the United States Army to build on the fort's property. The expo opened on time and within budget, a first for World's Fairs. 
Opening day was declared a state holiday by California Governor Hiram Johnson, and nearly 18 million visitors made the journey to the lush gardens and courts, taking in the sights and sounds of the countries who participated. Just like its predecessors, the Panama Pacific Expo Halls were built to be temporary, and the structures would be shipped to the fair site via barges. One of the coolest things to take place during the fair was one of the first transcontinental phone calls between Alexander Graham Bell in New York and Dr. Thomas Watson in San Francisco. The long-distance phone call had been tested six months earlier, but the call at the Expo was used to officially launch AT&T's transcontinental service. While many buildings erected for the fair were meant to be temporary, one site remains. The Palace of Fine Arts, used to showcase art during the Expo, it was repurposed during World War II to house jeeps and required a complete rebuild in the 60s. As a California native, I'm a little embarrassed to admit I did not know this factoid, especially considering the number of times I've visited the place. The fair had 80,000 exhibits from 35 countries. Taking place during the First World War, many European countries were unable to participate to the extent they wanted. Another side effect of the war? More East Coast-based U.S. citizens attended the Pacific International Expo since they were unable to take their summer solstices overseas. In 1933, Chicago got another bite of the exposition apple, or deep-dish pizza, hosting the Century of Progress International Exhibition throughout 1933 and 1934. The event was held in celebration of the city's centennial anniversary and focused on technological innovation as the theme. The motto for the fair was, quote, science finds, industry applies, and man adapts, end quote. This fair was a bit different given that it was hosted during the Great Depression in the United States, and therefore the Expo worked hard to build up the confidence of the consumer and the United States political system. Due to the financial crisis, the head of Sears and Roebuck had to secure $12 million in gold notes to help underwrite the cost of the fair. This fair was smaller than many of its predecessors, taking place on only 427 acres of land in Burnham Park. In an effort to help exemplify the faith in the nation's recovery, President Hoover and his wife made a special trip to the fair in 1933. Here is a portion of the video made to promote his visit. First Lady, pleased with the reception, begin a busy day seeing the sights by reviewing the soldiers stationed at the World's Fair. This is just like old days to Mr. Hoover. He's done this so many times that he feels perfectly at home already. The Century of Progress Garrison is a smart bunch of soldier boys. <laughs> to gain consumer confidence, a number of exhibits focused on technological advancements people could put into their homes to help, quote, modernize their lives. The hope was visitors would be so excited by these new products that they would run out and upgrade their homes, thereby aiding in the economic recovery. President Franklin Roosevelt placed so much faith in the ability of the fair that he asked organizers to host a second round in 1934, which they did. As part of the 34 exhibition, foreign villages were added due to the success of the Belgian village from the fair's run the year prior. This Belgian village was an immersive experience, with replications of buildings, cafes, and streets, and is credited as an inspiration for Walt Disney's Epcot International Pavilion some 40 years later. The expo was also used as a PR opportunity for science. During World War I, a number of scientific advancements were used on the battlefields, including things like mustard gas, which led to some pretty gruesome deaths. Wanting to repair its reputation, the Expo dedicated an entire hall to the cooperation between government, science, and business to demonstrate a better future was possible. 
Ironically enough, while science was displaying their advancements, somebody forgot to clean the water. There was an amoebic dysentery outbreak, with over a thousand attendees falling ill and 98 people dying. The cause was linked to a sewage draining into drinking water in two local hotels. Ew. And though the fair's theme was all about progress, it still lacked social progress, barring women and African Americans from participating in the development or hosting of the fair. Even worse, blacks were denied entrance to the fair and were unable to find jobs within the organization. Come back next week as I continue on the journey through the United States World's Fairs. There's still plenty of things to cover, including the fair that brought in the Space Age and more Disney trivia. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Mm-hmm.